Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hidden deep in the German Bavarian mountains lies the picturesque village of Oberstdorf, a place where for hundreds of years people lived simple lives, where history was made elsewhere. Yet even this remote idyllic village couldn't escape the brutal iron grip of the Nazi regime. I'm your host James Rogers and to kick us off for a new year here on Warfare, I've invited the historian Julia Boyd onto the podcast. Julia takes us through the everyday and not so everyday lives of a village in the Third Reich. During on personal archives, letters, interviews and memoirs, she lays bare the brutality and love, courage and weakness, action and apathy of those who lived under Nazi rule. Hi Julia, welcome to the Warfare Podcast. How are you doing today? Hi, very nice of you to invite me. No, not a problem at all. It's great to have you on the podcast. We have covered the Third Reich from many angles here. We've looked at the rise and fall of Hitler. We've looked at the military campaigns, the atrocities, and even the aftermath of the Reich when Germany went through that painful process of rebuilding in the late 40s and early 50s. But what we've never done is we've never looked at the Reich through the eyes of the ordinary people who lived there. And so I'm excited to have you on the podcast, Julie, because you can take us back in history, take us back to the 1930s and 40s in Germany, to those picturesque Bavarian villages under Nazi rule. I suppose it's like the ones we might see in Band of Brothers as the 101st Airborne make their way towards Hitler's eagle's nest. But in that series, a lot of the population are deemed to be Hitler's chosen ones who have led a life of luxury through the 30s and 40s. Were they all Hitler's chosen ones? Absolutely not. In fact, I think you really have to go back to the end of the First World War to understand where the villagers were coming from when with the rise of the Nazi party and the rise of Hitler, because I think it's very difficult to understand people's different positions. And of course, in the village, there were many different viewpoints. You know, there were the dedicated Nazis at one end of the spectrum, and at the other end, there were people who loathed the Nazis. And then, of course, there were lots of people in the middle who may have started out as Nazis, but then changed their minds as the true nature of the regime became more apparent. But I think to understand where all these different viewpoints started, one has to look at the end of the First World War. Well, take us to that moment at the end of the First World War. Do we mean here that we're talking about the rise of 
disillusionment, the fact that it was so incredibly difficult under the terms of the Treaty of Versailles, and the fertile grounds upon which fascism and Nazism were able to bloom. Yes, all of that. My own view is that it's easy to underestimate how deeply ordinary German people felt about the humiliation of their country after the First World War and the Treaty of Versailles, which was rather unexpected. They had thought that President Wilson would see them right, as it were, and make sure they had a fair deal. And the reason I say this is because when I was writing an earlier book, Travelers in the Third Reich, I spent a lot of time looking at letters, reports written by Quakers, which are in the Friends Library in London. And the Quakers were extraordinary. They were out in Germany in January 1919, just a couple of months after the armistice. And they traveled all around the country on trains talking to ordinary people. And of course, many of them were starving. They were frozen. They were immersed in grief, having lost so many loved ones. There was all these insurrections going on in various cities. And yet the Quakers picked up on this point that the thing that almost they minded most was the sort of lack of prestige, that their country was now regarded as a pariah. And the reason I mention that is it's what influenced a lot of people in the early 30s when Hitler came to power, because they felt here at last was somebody who was going to restore Germany's prestige in the world and put the country back at the top table of nations where they felt they belonged. So, and of course, there were all the other things. You know, there was a terrible hyperinflation in the mid-20s. And while we look at Weimar as rather exciting period, you know, the cinema and the art and the music and the excitement of Berlin in the Weimar period, if you were sitting down in Bavaria and Oberstdorf, the village that I've written about, the world looked very different. There, Weimar looked like a sort of hopeless case. Too many parties, weak government, didn't know what they were doing, couldn't cope with the French and the Prussians. And so sitting there in Bavaria, you thought that it was a weak government and you longed for strong government. The villagers wanted somebody to lead Germany back. For many of them, that's exactly what Hitler seemed to promise them. And uh, that that's why they, to begin with, voted for him. And they were pleased when he finally came to power. Well, you mentioned Oberstdorf, and this is the village which you focus on in your book, a small village in Bavaria. What was it that made you want to focus on this particular location to give us a slice of life in the Third Reich? Well, to be honest, I'd never even heard of Oberstdorf until I met my collaborator in the book, Kati Patel, whose family have lived in the village for about five generations. And we met when I was writing the earlier book, Travellers in the Third Reich. And she said to me, she had written a book about Oberstdorf in the Third Reich because the village had formed a committee in the early part of the 20th century because they felt that it was essential that they write their village's history during this very painful time in its history before all the people that had actually lived through it were dead. And so there was a committee was formed. Some of them were from families that had supported the Nazis. Others had been very anti. And so it was a mixed collection of people coming from different backgrounds and Catty wrote this book, which was full of marvellous information. And from my point of view, what was particularly important was that she interviewed a lot of people who, by the time I came into the picture, had died. So when she asked me, would I write this book, because she felt that the story was interesting enough for a wider public, I wasn't at first very keen on the idea, because it did seem to me very arrogant to think that I, as some sort of random Brit, could 
turn up in Oberstdorf and say, you know, I'm going to write about your village at this very difficult time of its history. But when I went out there and I met some of the villagers and the chief civil servant, I sort of rather began to warm to the idea. And because some of the villagers I met were very keen on it, I sort of thought, well, I'll give it a shot. But I wasn't entirely convinced that I would actually be able to get underneath the skin of the place enough to be able to give a convincing account. But, you know, after a couple of years, as I sort of worked my way into it, I began to feel, yes, this was doable. And one of the things that really surprised me when I started, I thought, well, you know, writing about a village, it's the most southern village in Germany. I thought, well, what's the point of writing about a village that's so far away from the war? You know, the war must have passed it by. But actually, after four years of working on this book, I realized there was scarcely any aspect of the war that couldn't be viewed through the Oberstdorf perspective, if you like. So that was a revelation. And I think it, you know, it shows that really there wasn't anywhere in Germany, there wasn't any community that could escape. The Nazi tentacles went into every aspect of German society. And that was true of Oberstdorf, as it was pretty much across the country. I like this idea of the Oberstdorf perspective, because that's certainly how you present it through the book. There's almost every slice of life of major controversy and event that we know of that happens across Germany during this period that has in, in some way, it has a manifestation within this small microcosm that is this tiny village. And you open the book in such a dramatic way with the brown shirts marching in with sticks of fire in their hands. And maybe you could take us to that moment in 1933 after Hitler has been sworn in as Germany's chancellor. What's the reaction in a village like this in Germany to the start of what they must have thought was a brand new period of German pride? Well, I think there was relief that at last they had a, a strong leader and there was going to be a strong government and Hitler was going to not be pushed around by all these foreigners. I think there was a very strong feeling that this was going to be a good thing. And that first evening after the 5th of March election, the stormtroopers marching around with flaming torches and so on. But what surprised the villagers was that the speech that was made in the marketplace was not made by their own mayor, but the head of the Nazi party. And that made a lot of them feel very uneasy because these villagers had been used to running their own life for generations. It was a tough life. They were rural people and it was a difficult life. And tourism had developed in the early part of the century, which had brought some money to place. But they were a proud, independent people and very devoutly Catholic. So although they wanted strong government in Berlin, they didn't necessarily want strong government in their own village. And this Nazi mayor was a nightmare for them because the Equalization Act that came in quite soon after the March election meant that every single aspect of village life, you know, German communities had lots of societies and even in Oberstdorf, which at this point had a population of about 4,000 people, had something like 50 different societies and each society had to rewrite its rules to take into account the Nazi rule book. And so the villagers, although they were still very keen on Hitler, they resented this intrusion into their own village affairs. And in fact, that particular mayor was got rid of fairly quickly. And the subsequent mayor was a very different kettle of fish. And he remained mayor right the way through until 1945. And although he was a robust Nazi, certainly at the beginning, he was actually a decent human being, which is an odd thought, because most of us think that can a Nazi be a decent human being? And most of us would say it's impossible. But certainly his view of, I think, the Nazis changed as the years went by. And 
from his position as mayor, he did his best to mitigate some of the worst aspects of Nazi rule. And he did protect the few Jews that were living in the village and the nuns who it was very difficult for them living under the Nazis. So I think Ludwig Fink, I think he's one of the most interesting characters in the book because he, in a sense, epitomizes the gray area. We're so used to looking at the Nazis in terms of black and white, good and evil, monster and hero, that we forget that actually most of life is about the grey, at least my life is, I don't know about yours. And so I think he, for me, was a very interesting character in as much as he sort of epitomised the grey area at a period of history when we tend to think of either you were a monster or you were a hero. Well, tell us a little bit about Fink, because he sounds like a fascinating character. It must have been incredibly difficult to tread that fine line between trying to protect the Jewish community, trying to protect broader religious freedoms, and then having to enact these quite awful policies handed down by edict from the head of the main Nazi party, whether that be regionally or nationally. So how was he able to achieve this? Did he have close relations with the local police or the Gestapo? Did he keep one side happy? How did he have this? this balance, I guess, in day-to-day life when so many others would have been swept up and removed from power and even imprisoned? Well, it was helped the fact that Oberstdorf was actually a long way from any Gestapo. The Gestapo was a surprisingly small organisation. I think the nearest Gestapo to Oberstdorf was probably in Munich. And it also helped that one level up from the mayor was the Kreisleiter, the regional director, who was a very senior Nazi. But he also was a surprisingly moderate guy. I mean, going back to what I was saying about having to go back to the end of the First World War to understand what happened, I think the Kreisleiter, who's called Kalhammer, and Ludwig Fink, who's the mayor of Oberstdorf, both joined the Nazi party for patriotic reasons, because they felt they wanted to see German be restored as a proud nation. And so they joined the Nazi party because they thought Hitler was going to do that. And then when they saw that the persecution of Jews didn't subside once Hitler came to power, when they realized the absolute arm curtain that came down on freedoms and the legal system and all the other horrors that the Nazi party introduced, I think at that stage they began to draw back. But what you have to remember is that you couldn't just suddenly say, well, actually, I don't really like this government anymore and I'm going to resign or I'm going to protest. If either Kalhammer or Fink had tried that, they would have ended up in Dachau or they would have been tortured or killed. Both of them had families. And so even if they were prepared to be martyrs, there was the families to think of. And I think this is true for a lot of people. I'm not for a moment pretending that Oberstdorf didn't have its fair share of absolutely committed, dedicated Nazis. It certainly did. But there were others whose view of the regime definitely changed as time went by. But at the beginning of the war, of course, Hitler seemed to fulfill his promises of quick, short war in which Germany would be the victors, which would wipe out the shame of the Treaty of Versailles. So at the beginning, with the Blitzkrieg and the astonishing success of the Blitzkrieg, people in Oberstdorf, including the Mayor Fink and Kreisleiter Kalhammer, thought, well, you know, this is actually going to work. And It's a bit brutal at the beginning, but once we've won and things have calmed down, it will go back to being a fairer system. And of course, none of that happened because after the Blitzkrieg and the invasion of Barbarossa, things went from bad to worse. And the hysteria in the Nazi regime about keeping people 
absolutely under their powers. So that if you made a joke in the post office in Oberstdorf, you could end up in a concentration camp or be executed. So there was a terrific climate of fear. So even if people changed their minds or realized that they'd made a mistake in voting for the Nazis, there wasn't very much I think they could do about it unless they were quite unbelievably brave and prepared to end up in a concentration camp. Hi there. I'm Don Wildman, host of the new podcast, American History Hit. Twice a week, I'll be exploring stories from America's past to help us understand the United States of today. Join me as I head back in time to witness Thomas Jefferson write the Declaration of Independence, head to the battlefields during the Civil War, visit Chief Poetin as he prepares for war with English colonists, tour Central Park before it was Central Park, and a city in Tennessee which helped build the atomic bomb. From famous battlefields to secret cities, from familiar names to lesser known events, I'll speak with leading experts from across the United States and beyond to bring American history to life. Join me every Monday and Thursday for American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You 
mentioned Dachau and you mentioned concentration camps. And I suppose this is the thing that makes me a little uneasy with the way in which we're representing Obersdorf. Because am I right in thinking that Dachau and subcamps and foreign labour camps were located near to the village? Yes, well, Dachau is very close to Munich. And Munich was about 100 miles to the northeast of Oberstdorf. But, you know, one of the big questions that always comes up is how much did ordinary people know? And my view is that they knew quite a lot. In Oberstdorf, for instance, there was a Waffen-SS training camp just a few miles outside the village. And prisoners were sent from Dachau to build it and to maintain it. And they would be sent into the village in their striped uniforms to buy supplies. And then as the Allies were able to bomb Munich and Augsburg and so on, towards the end of the war, BMW and Messerschmitt moved their manufacturers out of the cities into places like Oberstdorf. So there were little manufacturers dotted around. And these were run by slave labour camps. And then there was a proper Dachau sub-camp. I mean, the camp life is very complicated. There were all kinds of different camps. The Russians and the Poles were treated as vermin. The French and the Dutch were treated much better, but all of them were basically under the thumb of Nazis. They couldn't go back to their own countries or decide they didn't like it anymore. And people were just abducted from their villages in Poland or wherever and made to work in these hideous camps. So they were around Oberstdorf, so people knew about them. Some people no doubt thought, well, they're only in those camps because they deserve it. Others must have realised that life in these camps was appalling. I don't know how much the villagers knew about the gas chambers in the extermination camps, although the RAF was dropping pamphlets telling people what was going on. But there were all those people who must have been involved in the camps. People in Oberstdorf travelled, and then just 10 miles to the north of Oberstdorf, there was a slightly bigger town called Zontofen, where there was a big kind of Nazi fortress, where people like Himmler used to come and brief local Nazis on things like the final solution. And it's hard to believe that rumours didn't leak out into the surrounding area. And also the other point, of course, is that a lot of the soldiers were coming home on leave and they had seen appalling atrocities in Russia and so on, and they probably taken part in them themselves. And although they wouldn't have dared say anything publicly, they must have told their families. Some people just thought it was all enemy propaganda. But there must have been a lot of villagers who really did understand some of the horrors that were going on. And there was one man from Oberstdorf who always sticks in my mind called Heinz Schubert. And he was a member of a particularly unpleasant unit called the Einsatzgruppe that used to go in after the Wehrmacht had conquered a new territory and murder Jews and homosexuals and gypsies. And Schubert was responsible for organising the murder of 700 gypsies in Crimea. And after the war, he was tried at Nuremberg with other members from this unit. And it's very striking. For a start, he said he was descended from the composer's family, which is a rather sort of extraordinary and horrifying thought. But he also said at his trial that they didn't set out to murder people. They thought they were saving Western civilization, which I think takes one neatly to the point that one has to remember that young people were brainwashed in the Hitler Youth and the girls' version from a very young age. And because there wasn't the internet and because they weren't able to read lots of different foreign newspapers and things and there wasn't really much in the way of foreign radio, they really were brought up to believe that they were surrounded by hostile nations and that Jews and Poles and Russians were vermin. 
and that it was up to the Germans to save Europe from the great tide of communism that was about to sweep across Europe. I think the examples you give certainly highlight the importance and the power of propaganda and the impact it had on young minds during this period to turn them against people within their own community or, like you say, in nearby nations. But is there something far more basic and benign about the evil that's going on here as well? Because it's not just those that have been turned through propaganda, but it must have been an incredibly affluent time for this community. You're saying that there are new industries moving into the area, the war-making economy has record employment. And yes, they're learning about these terrible atrocities that are going on at Dachau and in the subcamps all around the area. But is it not just simply the case that they were benefiting more than they were losing? And so they were happy? No? No, because by the time those factories moved into the vicinity of Wisdorf, they were losing the war. I mean, once the German army went into the Soviet Union, there was a great deal of anxiety. At first, it seemed to be going all right, but then quite soon it faltered, as I'm sure you know. And so after that, it was terrifying for the villagers. And though they didn't get bombed themselves, the population of Oberstdorf doubled in the war because of the refugees and the evacuees. So there were people coming from the Ruhr who were evacuated to Oberstdorf. And then last stages of the war, of course, there were all the people fleeing the Russians from the east. So it wasn't a time of affluence, far from it. The first years of the war, yes, the successes in the Blitzkrieg made everybody think that, you know, the war wasn't going to last long. But as soon as things began to go wrong in Russia, then morale began to drop. And also, apart from anything else, the first couple of years of the war, there were very few casualties. But the moment the army went into the Soviet Union, of course, the casualties mounted at huge speed. And a lot of the Oberstdorf boys joined the 99th Regiment, the 1st Mountain Division. And Katya and I were lucky enough to find two diaries kept by soldiers in that regiment. So we were able to follow the Oberstdorf soldiers right the way through the war, right really from the beginning to the very end. And there was a lot of rationing. There was a lot of shortages. It was cold. The village had to feed and look after all these evacuees and refugees. So it wasn't a time of affluence, absolutely far from it. The time of affluence was before the war, really, when there was a lot of tourism in Oberstdorf, and that turned the village into quite an affluent community. But by 1941, 1942, morale was pretty low. And so let's combine all of this together. And we have to ask the question, and it's one, of course, that we've asked throughout the 20th century, the 21st century, and we look back on this period, you know, what is it that you would have done in their shoes in this situation under great pressure? But what did they do when they were faced with the fact that their sons, their youngest, their best, their brightest were being killed en masse in Hitler's war, which they knew they were losing? They knew that the Jewish people and minorities were being killed in camps all around them. Did they try and protest? Did they try and rise up? What did they do? You know, you really couldn't do that. The number of people that were really prosecuted and sent to prison was pretty small, but there was the fear of it. A very good illustration of that is the wife of a family who were actually socialists and very anti-Hitler. And everybody used to listen to the foreign radio stations, which was an offence, and you could be very severely punished if you were caught. And Frau Neuchel, as she was called, and her youngest son were crossing the marketplace one day, when he suddenly started jumping up and down and saying, patata, patata, which was the jingle of a French foreign station. 
And if a Nazi had been within earshot, he would have known that they'd been listening to this forbidden French radio station. So there were things like that. You weren't sure who you could trust and whether you would be denounced. Though it didn't happen as much as you would think, it certainly produced a very uncomfortable atmosphere in the village. And it was really very difficult to protest, I think. People just, I think, kept their heads down and wanted to survive. But what did happen at the end of the war, which is a remarkable story, really, is that a number of villagers got together and formed a resistance group. Everybody understood the war had been lost and they wanted to hand over to the Allies to avoid the village being destroyed by bombardment. But there were equally a lot of Nazis around because some were escaping over the mountains and then some came to the Waffen-SS camp and then there was this stronghold in Zontofen. So while this resistance group was forming, at the same time, Nazis were streaming down from the north to the area around Oberstdorf. And there was an edict that anybody who put out a white flag or was heard to make defeatist talk could be shot on the spot, including children. I mean, boys and old people were sent off to fight in the last stages of the war. And if you pretended you were ill, he and his father would be strung up or executed on the spot. So it was very tense in the last months of the war. But amazingly, this resistance group in Oberstdorf managed to arrest all the Nazis, lock them up and hand over to the French. And not a shot was fired. But the French commander said, after he'd come into Oberstdorf, he said if there had been one shot fired, he would have destroyed the village with heavy guns. That is remarkable, isn't it? It's fascinating to hear how the village then came together to tell this really uneasy and quite disturbing history, one which didn't paint many of them in a very good light, but one that was necessary to avoid history repeating itself into the future. I've got one more question for you, Julia, before I let you go. Is it true that some of the villagers or the villagers from local towns and the area were taken after the war to be shown what had happened at Dachau and the surrounding camps and were made to actually bury the dead? I didn't come across any instance of anybody from Oberstdorf doing that, but I think that was true. I don't know about burying the dead, but certainly I've read about ordinary German people being made to go and watch the footage in cinemas. And I think this does bring up this fascinating story of how Germans reacted after the war. And of course, everybody wanted to forget it. Everybody wanted to get on with their lives. People didn't face up to it. They concentrated on why there were these military defeats. And it was very difficult to really figure out who was a Nazi and who wasn't. Because although we think it must have been quite easy to sort it out, there were all these permutations. The headmaster at Oberstdorf was a very good example. He wore an SA uniform. He remained headmaster. He had to implement the awful lessons and the curriculum, but he wasn't really a Nazi and he did his best to mitigate the worst sides of Nazi education. You know, he allowed Jews into his school. So he's a sort of one of these grey figures. And then we've had the mayor. There were others who joined the Nazi party who were known to have been anti-Nazi, but they joined the Nazi party. They're listed as members of the Nazi party because maybe it made life a little bit easier. Maybe it helped protect your job or your family. And I think one has to try to do is to put yourself in the shoes of these people without hindsight and think, what would I have done? And speaking personally for myself, I'm absolutely sure I would have detested the Nazis, everything about them. But I am a coward. I would have been scared out of my wits. And particularly if I had children or a family I would have done anything to protect them. And I think I would have just tried to 
keep my head down and just get on with it and survive. And I think probably that's what happened to the majority of villagers. They may have started out as convinced Nazis and ended up disillusioned. Others hated the Nazis from the beginning, but wanted to survive and keep their families safe. So you have this sort of mixture of things. And it was an evolving process. You know, just because you were a Nazi in 1933 didn't mean to say that you still were by 1945 for all kinds of different reasons. I think the whole point of the book really was to try and present a more nuanced picture of what it was like for a small German community to live through this whole desperate period of their history. Well, thank you so much, Julia. I guess you're right. It really is hard for us to put ourselves into their shoes. But by putting one village under the microscope like you do, you help us to understand why Germans responded to Hitler in the manner that they did, whether we agree with them or not. Now, please tell us, where can we read more about this history? Where can we get our hands on your new book? It's pretty much in bookshops around and it's going pretty well and it's in all the major bookshops. If it's any interest to anybody listening, I don't think you'll have any problem finding a copy. Wonderful. That's what we like to hear. And we'll put a link to the book in our show notes. Julia, thank you so much for your time. Not at all, James. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks for listening. But before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at James Rogers History, and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.